If you brought your Bible, we're going to begin with first, uh, Second Samuel, chapter one. If you didn't, there's a blue Bible in front of you, and uh, that's page two fifty-five. Actually, going to read a verse from Second Samuel chapter, First Samuel chapter sixteen to begin with us, but we're going to be moving along here in Second Samuel today. Uh, but just to get give us some context in First Samuel chapter sixteen, at the direction of God, you'll remember that Samuel went to Bethlehem to crown a new king, the king that's the man after God's own heart. And it's sort of a secret ceremony. It happens at a house. It's not something that's uh, you know, accompanied by a parade or any kind of announcement. But Samuel goes there, and it says this in chapter 16, verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So this is the sort of the inauguration of the king, although there is a king still alive, that's Saul, and Saul is moving away from the Lord, and David is moving towards the Lord, and soon to be king. Uh, After chapter 16, David gets one impressive chapter, chapter 17. This is David and Goliath, and so he's anointed the king. Sometime later, there's a battle with the Philistines. The giant Goliath comes out, And David defeats Goliath, which we talked about. And then he, because of this great victory, he gets ushered into the king's palace. Saul wants to know who this person is and obviously wants to have him near him, not surprisingly. And so David gets one good chapter. And then in chapter 18, it all starts falling apart for David. Not because of David, but because of Saul. Saul becomes jealous of David and eventually tries to put David to death. And from chapter 18, let's just try to remember this, chapter 17, David is a young man, maybe 20, 18, we don't know. He gets anointed to be the king by the prophet Samuel. In chapter 17, he kills Goliath and comes into the king's palace. And in chapter 18, to the very end of the book, 13 chapters later, over 10 years, he's a king that lives in a cave. So I'm just trying to help you appreciate the emotional state of David. You, you know, you get, you just get called out of the field, you're going to be the king. Then you kill Goliath, you come into the king's palace, so everything's up and to the right, but just for one chapter, and then whoosh, for 10 years you live in a cave. And you can, I just want you to feel how disorienting that could be on what you thought was going to happen. So we find David as a king in a cave. And when we come to the end of 1 Samuel, it concludes with two simultaneous battles. Saul, the the king that's on his way out, is fighting a battle. And David, who's the king on the way in, he's fighting a battle in two different areas in Israel. And David wins his battle, but Saul and Saul's son, Jonathan, who is David's best friend, they lose. And in the loss, Jonathan is killed. And at the very end of 1 Samuel, Saul brings his own kingdom to an end by killing himself. 
So 1 Samuel ends in a very depressing way. And in 2 Samuel, which is where we're going to be turning to today, specifically in chapter 1 and chapter 7, uh, this king, this new king, David, he's emerging from a cave. You can think about that as a picture for you. And I want to talk about the rise of King David by just really using two events. There's a lot of content here in these first ten chapters. And uh, as a review, I just want to think about two things this morning. Grief and grace. Grief and grace. Grief, chapter 1. When 2 Samuel opens with David receiving a report... So somebody's come from the battlefield of Saul and coming to David and saying, hey, I'm giving you a report, Jonathan and Saul are dead, and they lost their battle. And in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, we see this, David's reaction. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for those of the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. You might call David's reaction spontaneous grief. You've had this in your own life. You've seen it. Somebody gets on a report. It's an arresting report. It's not something you anticipated. And here's this your you know, just immediate emotional reaction. I'm, I just sort of burst into tears. I have, I'm tearing my clothes. I'm so distraught over this spontaneous, this news that I've heard. So it's called spontaneous grief. But once the rush of emotions are wrung out of your soul, they're comes a second kind of grief that I'm going to call structured sorrow. So you hear the news and you have just sort of an immediate reaction, but again, you know this, you've been through this. After that sort of that immediate emotional tears get wrung out of your soul, then you start reflecting on it, you start sort of emotionally trying to respond to it in a more reflective way. And you formulate some, a narrative in your head, a response. And the Bible word for this structured sorrow, if you write it down, is called lament. Very important activity of the soul, very important part of the Bible, especially for David. And so when, when we're talking about this lament, which is chapter 1, we're talking about structured sorrow. I've, I've, I've sort of had my tears wrung out, but now I'm really processing it, not just from a sort of a, an immediate emotional reaction, I'm, I'm processing it from my soul. What do I need to be thinking about that? How has this affected my soul? How has it maybe damaged my soul? How should I be thinking about this going forward? This is, this is when you lament. You write down your thoughts. You, you want to try to get them in a way that can somehow make sense and help you move forward. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 19 through 27, it's probably written in your Bible in a way that looks like poetry, because that's what it is. It could be a psalm of David's, but it's, a, a, it's, a, it's his lament. And I, I want you to picture David sitting in a dark room, and he hears the news, and he just can't see anything. He just feels this emotion. But as he sits there, just like you and I in a dark room, eventually you can 
start making out little pieces, corner of the room, a little piece of light that's coming in. Your eyes begin to adjust to the darkness. And he structures his sorrow with this poem. And I'm just going to mention three parts because it breaks into three parts. First of all, chapter 1, verses 19 and 21 is what I would call denial. For your, your glory... O Israel is slain. Jonathan and Saul, they've been slain. The mighty have fallen, verse 19. Don't, don't tell it out, verse 20. You ever had, just felt that way? I just, it, it, somehow, if I, just no one knows about it, you sort of think, well, then it's not really happening. And in verse 21, you mountain of Gilboa, this is the location of the actual battle that was lost. No dew or rain on you. It's, it's, um, it's in this grief, David uh, wants the whole world to stop operating as normal. It, it, something so heavy has happened so big, he, he just doesn't want things to go on as normal. This isn't rational. And what I'm trying to help you say is, it's okay in your structured grief to have a place that's just not rational. I mean, you know people are going to hear about it. You know the sun's going to, the sun's going to go down and dew is going to come on this spot and another day is going to happen. You know it, but just at this moment, in order to, to get it out of your soul, you, you speak irrationally. I don't want anybody to know about it. I, I don't want the sun to, to go down in another day. I, I want everything to stop. This is a really important part of the grieving process. And especially if you're intersecting someone at that point, don't try to be rational with them. Just let them get it out. Don't say, well, you know, that sounds irrational. I mean, that's, you're not going to be a friend with that person afterwards. I remember when I was 23, my mother died. She had cancer, and I knew she was going to die. But when, when you get the news, it really hits you in a different kind of way. And so I'm... I was driving somewhere, uh, I can't remember, meet my family maybe, and I'm, I'm at a stop, you know, four-way stop uh, light. And I'm just, I'm just broken. Like, my world has just collapsed. And I'm looking around at this stoplight, and somebody's eating fries. Uh, somebody is a little irritated that they got caught by the light. Somebody's dancing to some song. And, and what I wanted to do is say, Stop! Do you not realize my world just collapsed? You, many of you have felt that way. You get to that moment where you just you want the whole world to stop because your world has stopped, and you're asking the whole world to stop, and it doesn't, but you're trying to process that by saying it out loud. This is what David is doing. These kinds of emotions... These kinds of impossible wishes need to pour out of your soul. It doesn't have to be realistic in the beginning. It just needs an outlet. The second thing David does in his lament is he remembers. Verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. Now, I've sort of gotten this first burst of energy out and now I'm reflecting on these two men Saul a kind of father figure for David and Jonathan his best friend they're beloved they're lovely 
Verse 24, daughters of Israel, weep. Weep over Saul. Now, what, what's so surprising about this? David's looking at Saul and saying, he's, he's lovely, he's beloved, people should weep, weep over him. I wonder if you would think that way if that person had been trying to put you to death. If you had spent 10 years in a cave because that person. I think my initial reaction would be, hip, hip, hooray. I mean, finally, some kind of relief. So I'm asking myself this question, why is David lamenting Saul's death? couple of things I might say here. First, laments aren't designed to be complete biographies. When you come to a funeral and somebody gives a eulogy, they're not going to tell you everything about the person, right? I mean, they're just going to say, I'm remembering the good parts today. It doesn't have to be a balanced view of the person's life right at this moment. And David did lose some good things. He had some good times with Saul. And David chooses to remember those those good things. He wants to grieve those losses. It's possible David is grieving the loss of any possibility of restoration. I mean, while Saul was alive, there was at least some chance that maybe uh, God would do something or Jonathan could sort of kind of come back to his father and say, you know, David's not your enemy, he's your friend. There, there was some sort of glimmer of hope that something good could happen, but now it, that's gone. And maybe David is just grieving this loss because it's no longer possible. Some of you, I'm sad to say, know what I'm talking about. You never had a, a great relationship with your mother, your father. And you know, it doesn't matter how old you get. When you think about your parents, you still feel like a little child. And you still have these hopes and wishes and dreams of how it could have worked out or what it should have been like. And they die and you grieve because it just never worked out that way. And part of your grief is just saying, and it's not going to now. Something very important, I think, for us to consider here is Saul was jealous of David. Saul cheated David. Saul tried to kill David. Yet through all this distress, David wasn't emotionally destroyed by Saul. It's very important. These, these bad things actually did occur. And we're not holding them up, and we're not trying to say, well, you know, they're not a big deal. They, they were a big deal. He's, this, this, this person, Saul, was acting against the will of God. But, but David, see, he has sort of a choice here. He's going to let that sort of consume him. It's gonna, he's going to let his, this, this father figure crush his soul, which could easily, you would understand how it could happen. But David doesn't allow that to emotionally destroy him. This this burden that he bears for 10 years living in a cave could have reduced David to an angry person. Can't you see that? You, you get crowned the king, and then you have this great battle, and you get into the king's palace, and you feel like everything's up to the right, and then, boom, it just drops off a cliff. And it's it's one thing if you just said, hey, that was a bad week. 
What if you say, hey, that was a bad decade? See, a decade is enough time for anger to get in your soul. And you don't know it's little by little. And then when you come out of the cave, you're angry. That's who you are. When, when we squeeze you now, anger comes out. And you understand why that would happen, but David doesn't allow that to happen. One commentator writes this, Saul's hatred, instead of narrowing David and reducing him, provided the conditions in which David became large, expansive, and generous. You see, there's two, two options here for David. The, the pain that he actually does endure can sort of consume him, can cripple him, can sort of fill him with poison, or it can be a burden that actually allows him to work to be large and expansive and generous because God's behind this thing in some way, and maybe I don't understand why, but he's allowing this burden to be in front of me right now, and so I, I'm just going to embrace it, and I'm not going to be shut down by it. It makes me large. It makes me expansive. It makes me generous. The burden, listen, David had to push against for 10 years. It never changed. He never affected any change in Saul, not one inch. But that burden, David knew, was placed there by God's sovereignty in order for David to grow, to grow into becoming the king. And it's possible... Our point of application is possible that some of the burdens which you carry, some of the burdens you have to push against that you aren't making any headway on, it's possible God put those there not for you to change those people or situations. It's just so that you could be changed by them. See, that, that's very important for us to know. It's possible that God's put something so big and so heavy, no matter how long you push on that person or that situation, you will never move it. And God never meant it to be there for you to move it. He meant it to be there so you could be moved. But what's problematic is the way you could be moved is that I become an angry and bitter person. Instead of realizing God's put it there for some purpose to make me expansive, to make me generous, to make me trust God even in difficult situations. Third part of this lament is grieving. Chapter, verse 26, for the first time in David's lament, he breaks into the first person, I I am distressed. Specifically thinking about his relationship with Jonathan. Your love to me was extraordinary. He's, he's getting to the center of his pain now. He is sorry about the situation with Saul, but the real painful part for David is that David, if you remember, David and Jonathan had a dream. 
Remember Jonathan came to David and said, hey, I know you are the real king, and I want you to know I'm not going to try to take over because I'm the son of the king. I'm going to stand by your side, and together we're going to rule Israel. And to me, that is a God-glorifying plan. And that dream right here has died. Before David can move forward, before he can become the king, he has to sit and grieve the loss of that dream. He can't just say, oh well. You have to say, you have to structure your sorrow. This is the way you get through sorrow, is you say, I had a dream. It was a good dream would have been a God-glorifying thing if that could have happened, but it is not going to happen. I've got to be able to process that. I was listening to a leadership podcast, and the topic was grieving your losses. Grieving your losses. And in the, in the podcast, this quote, Life, especially for the life of a leader, is a series of ungrieved losses. I wonder if you might think that way about your life. He goes on to say, so often life is moving so fast that you don't have time to grieve or you don't know how to grieve. So you bury your grief and you just limp forward. I wonder if that describes anybody here. Losses are meant to be grieved. And when we fail to grieve, when we fail to structure our sorrow, when we fail to sort of wring this sorrow out of our souls... Those losses are internalized, and this is the takeaway. If you don't take time or you don't know how to grieve these losses and the pain gets buried like a seed in your soul, eventually it bears dysfunctional fruit. Think about all the ungrieved losses in this room right now. Be hard to even calculate just the last year of losses. Things you had hoped were going to happen, but they didn't happen. Or they didn't happen like you had hoped for. Your, your dream of the wedding or your dream of this or that, it just all got collapsed because of COVID. I mean, we all have all these losses. Some of us have dreams that in our life we we had hoped for something, but they got terminated because of death or divorce. Perhaps you're sitting here and you assumed that in your lifetime this certain thing would happen with your career or your health or your intimacy or a marriage or a strong family, and it's just, it just hasn't materialized. Maybe you're at a point where you say it's not going to materialize. These are, these are real losses, these are losses that you're, you're going to have to learn how to grieve. And David gives us a pattern here, how to structure your grief. If you're a journaler, you want to journal, hey, I've got this real loss that I need to grieve. And I just want to take a moment here because we're, we're all going to break up and say hello and go grab some food out there that we had left over for the Inquirer's weekend and say, why don't they have these little pecan twirls all the time? I understand that. And you're going to get in your car and you're going to turn on the radio or watch television when you get home. And 
I, I just want to take a moment for you to identify in your mind a grief, a loss. And just think, have I, have I taken any kind of appropriate time or measure to grieve that loss? Or have I just been so busy, or I don't know how, so I just kind of move on? Is it, is it possible that you're burying a seed that you don't think is a big deal today? It may not show up today. But 10 years from now, it bears dysfunctional fruit because you come out angry. You come out narrow. Grief. This is the way to David becoming the king. He's got to move through this. Grace, chapter 7. David is now the king. And let's just read the first three verses here, chapter 7. Now when the king had lived in his house, this is David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. You see that? He's come out of a cave. He's put everything together because of the Lord's been with him. And so David, David's sort of finally in that place that maybe way back in 1 Samuel 16 he hoped he would be. Verse 2, the king, David, said to his, to his pastor, the prophet, the, the person who's listening to and speaking for God, Nathan, see, Nathan, I, I dwell in this house of cedar. I have a great big house, but God's house, where the Ark of the Covenant is, it's in a tent. I'm in a, I'm in a, 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 a beautiful home. God's in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, well, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Saul's dead. The Philistines have been put in their place. Everything's come together. And David decides, hey, there's one more thing I'd like to tackle here. And I'd like to get God out of a tent and into a temple. Seems like a very reasonable thing. So David, now that his enemies are sort of subdued, has time. He's got power. He's got wealth. He's very popular. He's actually been blessed by the Lord. We saw that. So he goes to Nathan and says, Nathan, I'd like to launch a building project. And anytime somebody who's wealthy and powerful comes to a pastor and says, I'd like to launch a building project, what does the pastor say? Do all that is in your heart to do. That's what, not me, of course, but other pastors would say something like that. Makes perfect sense. Verse 4 and 5, that same night God visits Nathan. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I mean, am I asking you to build me a house? No, I've never asked you that. And you can read through the rest of that conversations. And why, why would God say no to that? Because he does say yes at another point. Eugene Peterson, in his excellent commentary, writes this. There are times when our grand human plans to do something for God are a huge distraction from what God is doing for us. There are times when our grand human plans 
to do something for God, which is, is, is admirable. But there are times when there are huge distraction from what God is doing for us. Our, our grand design for God might actually distract us from God. Peterson concludes, I think David was just about to cross over the line from being full of God to being full of himself. Wealth and power caused David to think he could do God a favor. So God says no. What happens in verse 8 through 17 is what I would call then an explosion of grace. It's not about what David's going to do for God. God wants to know, David, it's all about what I'm going to do for you. It's all about me. It's not about you. Maybe you need to get that reorientation this morning just from this text. And you see it, verse 8. I I took you from the pasture. David, let's just kind of go back and remember where you were. Remember you were just out in the middle of nowhere? And somebody came and said, hey, you're, you're one of the sons of Jesse. Can you come to the house? And you walk in and suddenly you're the king. You know, how does that happen? I did that. I cut off all your enemies, verse 9, like Goliath and the Philistines. The reason you're in this place of, of relative comfort is because I've done something for you. Let's remember the former grace that has come to you. Verse 9, then there's future grace. Let's not just reflect on the former grace. I want you to know there's future grace. Verse 9, and I will make for you a great name. And not just a a great name, a great name among all the people, all the great ones on the earth. And then in verse 12, David, I'm going to establish your future king, your, your future kingdom. It's going to come from you. David, there's future grace. Now, I, I want you to know that I've been with you in the past. I've gotten you to where you are right now. I'm going to be with you in the future. And then verse 16, if, if former grace and future grace wasn't enough, and why I call this the explosion of grace, verse 16, forever grace, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. It's amazing. This is why we sang the very first song. This is amazing grace. This is an explosion of grace. David's coming to God saying, I want to do something for you. And God's saying, no, it's all about what I'm going to do for you. It's all about my grace. And and think with me, because we're going to be in this passage in a couple of weeks. Why is this so amazing, this forever grace? Because when you turn just a few more chapters, you have David and Bathsheba. See, it's, it's, it's stunning all by itself, and we know it from our vantage point, but God's saying something here in chapter 7, knowing the events of chapter 11. I just want you to appreciate that. That God is telling David, I've brought you by grace to this point, I'm going to get you through your whole life with grace. And it's not just that. There's going to be forever grace extended to you. And I know in just a couple of years, you're going to sleep with your best friend's wife. Then you're going to kill your best friend and try to hide it. And I want you to know at that point, I have grace for you right then. 
See, some of us, some of us have experienced grace, but something tragic happened. And it was our fault. And now we say, well, we can't have that kind of grace. This, if anything can help you move out of that spot, it's this passage right here. I doubt any of us have slept with our best friend's wife or husband and then killed the person and then tried to hide it and deny it. But that's what God is saying. His grace is so much bigger than we would imagine. It's so much bigger than we would extend. It's so much bigger than we would extend to our own children. This is, this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. But once you see this kind of grace, how do you respond? Verses 8, 17 and 18, chapter 17. David wanted to build something. Nathan tells him no. It's a critical moment right here. How will David respond? See, David's not used to getting no, is my guess. Saul was told by Samuel the prophet to do certain things, and he didn't hear, he didn't obey. So how is David? How is David going to respond? It's a critical test. It's a, it's a critical test for David. It's a critical test for all followers here this morning for Jesus. When you have a desire, and then you're reading God's word, it says no, who are you going to listen to? See, this is a critical test. It happens, it's going to happen to you today or this week. I have a desire. And I read and God says, no, Paul. And this is, this is the moment of the test. Am I going to embrace God's word and say, you're right? Or am I going to say, no, i got to go through. I can't stop. I must have. David's response, verse 18, it's a kind of a circle verse. Then King David went in and what does it say? He sat down. He sat down before the Lord. It's a physical way of saying, I'm underneath you. Again, Eugene Peterson, David sat before the Lord. This is perhaps David's greatest act, more significant than killing Goliath. David was the king, bursting with ambitions and plans, yet David let himself be stopped by God. What we don't do for God is often far more critical than what we do. David sits down and he has a beautiful prayer, verses 18 through 29. I'll let you read that. But some of us, this is what we need to hear. It's time to sit down. Maybe particularly me. It's, it's time to hear God say, Paul, it's not about you. It's not about what you're doing for me at Christ Community Church. It's not about you trying to do me a favor. It's not about what you build for me. It's not about your project, your vision, CCC 2.0, the capital campaign. No, it's not about that. It's all about God. It's about what I'm doing. 
And what you're doing might be getting in the way. If you just sit down. Who here needs to find the courage to relinquish control on something? To just sit down and say, I wanted to go that way. And you're saying no. And instead of going forward, I'm just going to sit down and trust that what you say is true and right and you're good and gracious. And I can sit down in that. Got to go through grief. Got to let that be something that makes you expand, not contract. You got to know when to sit down, especially if you're in a leadership position. Say, I just trust God and his word. Let's pray together. Or so, so much here in these few verses and so much um, you want to deal with in the people in this room right now through these two chapters that everyone here today is a, it's a divine appointment to hear something in this and I pray that you would give us ears to hear we think about the, the losses that we've endured and whether they've actually sown a generosity or a bitterness that we trust that even though we're pushing and pushing against this thing that never seems to move it might be there for us not for us to move but for us to be changed by whoever here is holding so tightly onto something would you help them sit down just hear your gentle no and trust in that I pray in Jesus name Amen Let's stand and sing our closing.